Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're glad that you can join us for our 11 o'clock worship this morning. If you're new uh, or here for the first time, we do extend to you a special warm greeting, and we hope that you will continue to worship with us in the days ahead. One of my favorite TV shows, if I can tell you what it is, uh, is a show uh, on National Geographic called Air Crash Investigation. My wife wonders why I watch this show because she tells me it always ends the same. The plane crashes. It's the engineer in me that likes to find out why they crashed in the first place. This past week, I was watching their analysis of Air France Flight 447, which crashed in 2009 en route from Brazil to France with 228 passengers. And similarly, they were investigating Bergen Air Flight 301 with 189 Uh, passengers flying from the Dominican Republic to Germany, which crashed in 1996. In both cases, the instrument known as the pitot tube was the cause for these accidents. For those of you who don't know, the pitot tube records the airspeed. Uh, You've seen it. uh, You just don't know what it is. It's the L-shaped tube that comes out of the fuselage towards the front of the airplane. uh, It kind of sticks out like a spike, and there's about two or three of them on an airplane. And somehow, on both of these flights, the pitot tube, which uses air pressure to gauge the airspeed, was obstructed. And because they were blocked, uh, it gave wrong speed indicators to the pilots. But because the pilots didn't know they were obstructed, they trusted in these false readings. Oftentimes, because of the blockage, the airspeed reading looked like the plane was going faster than it really was. And so these pilots, based on these misinformation, made the crucial mistake of slowing the plane down. And when you slow a plane down, it's not able to generate the lift, and therefore the plane goes into a stall and begins to come down. In each of these cases, because of misinformation, the plane crashed and all lives aboard were lost. Stories like this challenge our very person in how we trust things that we see. And the reality is all of us have issues of trust because we've all been burned before. We've all made mistakes due to inaccurate facts. We've all made crucial mistakes because we have been misled. And the more we experience these things, the more we become jaded, the more we start trusting less Just this week, I was told something by someone I trusted very much, only to find out that it was not true. How can I trust this person again? And I'm sure all of you have undergone a very similar experience. And it's unfortunate that as we trust people less, the byproduct is that we also trust God less. Yes, we know we should trust Him completely and fully. But because our perspective of trust has been shattered. Our general trust of other people is not what it's supposed to be. Our trust of God is also not what it's supposed to be. How can we trust God again? What is trusting? Well, this morning as we continue our series entitled David, a man after God's own heart, we've been looking at characteristics that make up a heart for God. And this week we want to learn that a heart for God is characterized by a heart of trust, a heart of trust. 
If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 1 Samuel, chapter 21, as we take a look at verses 10 to verse 15. If you're new to the Bible, the book of 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. It's towards the first third of your Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then we get to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verse 10 to verse 15. As you turn to this passage, let me remind you from last week's message that David's life is now in danger. David is a fugitive. He is on the run. Saul has spies throughout the country of Israel looking for him. David is desperate. And at the beginning of chapter 21, we see that he turns to the priest Ahimelech for help. We find out that Ahimelech does help him, gives him some bread. And then David asks for a weapon. Do you have any weapon by which I can protect myself? And Ahimelech tells David, the only thing I have is the sword of Goliath. If you remember, the sword of Goliath was in David's possession. After he cut off Goliath's head and killed him, the Bible tells us that the sword was in David's possession in his tent. How it came to this priest's safekeeping, we are not told in the scripture, and it doesn't really matter. What is mentioned is that the priest Ahimelech gives David this sword. But I want you to notice is in verse 9. I want you to notice the fact that Goliath's sword is one of a kind. It's one of a kind. It's special. If you saw this sword, you would have immediately thought, if you lived in that time, this is Goliath's sword. I don't know how it looked. Perhaps he was a bit bigger because he was a giant. Perhaps he was so popular, he won so many uh, uh, games that he was so rich that he engraved the handle with his name Goliath in, in, uh, in jewels. I don't know. But it was special, it was unique, it was one of a kind. Why am I making such emphasis on this? Look at verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. There were not a lot of places where David could run to for safety. Spies were all over the land of Israel. Soldiers were looking for him. He must have been very desperate for him to run to the land of Gath. If you remember the significance of Gath, is that it is the hometown of the now-dead Philistine champion, Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. One must be desperate to run to the land of the enemy when you are carrying the sword of the one you killed who was their champion. I don't think David thought for a moment that somehow he could hide amongst the people of Gath. He was carrying Goliath's sword. He would have been instantly recognized. Now, we don't know why he ran to Gath. He just did. Perhaps he thought that since King Achish of Gath was an enemy of Saul, then perhaps, as the old adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Since Achish didn't like Saul, and Saul didn't like David, then maybe Achish would have liked David. That was the feeling, perhaps, of David. Well, he's easily recognized. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? 
Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Sure enough, the people of Gath instantly recognized David. Not recognized, perhaps, in the way David wanted them to recognize him. Hey, isn't this the great military leader who has killed tens and thousands of us, the Philistines? Oops. The Bible doesn't say it there, but perhaps one or two would have said, Hey, hey isn't that the sword of Goliath? He's carrying our, our champion. It's interesting that they addressed him as the king of the land. Either they were mocking him or knew of his anointing, or perhaps he was, he was just simply famous to them. Whatever the case, they had in David a prize captive. And from the questioning, they were assessing him. Why is he here? Can we trust him? Can we trust what he says? Is he a spy sent by Saul? Why is he on the grounds of Gath? Is he on a mission? Where do his allegiance lie? While this assessment is going on, we get a glimpse into the heart condition of David. Look at verse 12 with me. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David could sense through the questioning, perhaps, that his life was very much at stake, and he was scared. When we study the heroes of the Bible, we often come to a natural thinking that these heroes can do nothing wrong. They're superstars, superheroes. And what I want to show you here is that this great, future King David at this moment is scared. He is like you and me. The very same man who stood before Goliath with insurmountable odds is scared. He is normal like you and me. I'm sure when people are threatening you with the capability to kill you, you will be scared as well. And so was David. So what did he do? Look at verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Sensing that they were going to harm him, David begins to act crazy like a madman. I'm sure you've read this passage many a times and wondered why in the world would acting crazy get you away from being killed. This is where an understanding of the culture of the ancient Near East will help. It was a common belief of the ancient Near East that insanity, madness was an evil sign, a bad omen. And harming crazy people would just bring more bad luck to you. So usually the people just avoided all the crazy people, all those who were mad. And that's kind of what you have here in verse 14 and 15, the very same attitude that Achish will display to his servants. Look with me. Then Achish said to his servant, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? 
shall this fellow come into my house? King Achish is wondering, you foolish servants, I don't need any more bad luck. I don't even need any more bad omen. I've got enough crazy people living in Gath. I don't need another one. What's he doing here? The king wants nothing to do with David because he thinks he's crazy and so he lets him go. David is of no use to them, no strategic use. And we find out that David eventually flees to the wilderness of Ziph. Now, why do I bring up this incident? I bring up this incident because two beloved psalms are written during and right after this incident. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. We want to briefly look at these psalms to see what was the heart condition of David as he was undergoing this trial at Gath. If you have your Bibles, would you turn a few books over to the book of Psalm? And we'll begin with Psalm 56. Psalm 56, a psalm of David written while he was in Gath. We look to the psalms because it gives us a glimpse into the very heart of this man. Psalms are poetic statements that express the innermost feeling of the writer. It expresses through the eloquence and the richness of these words the very feeling of what David was going through. Now, lest you think that I'm simply putting this psalm with this incident, look at the caption right under Psalm 56. To the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, it's probably a tune, a mictum of David, a psalm of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Now, please don't ask me when he wrote it. Did he write it while he was going crazy? Uh, did he write it before or after? I have no idea. I like to believe that perhaps David, in a, in a holding cell, before he was to meet Achish, king of Gath, that he wrote his heart's cry. Whatever the case, David was still in the land of Gath, in the land of the enemy, when he writes these words in verse 1 and 2. Be merciful to me, O God. For men would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. David acknowledges that he is in trouble. Enemies surround him. He is in danger. And then suddenly, to our amazement, he makes this statement in verse 3 and verse 4. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his name. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? David, in this time of great distress, says, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I'm afraid now, God. In my current situation, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I place my trust in you so that I will not be afraid. What's the worst they can do to me? Now, if I was David, I wouldn't be asking that question. The worst they can do to him is they could 
kill him. We often say we trust God. and We're willing to trust God. In you, I will place my trust if I win. In you, God, I will place my trust if all things go well. In you, God, I will place my trust if the stakes aren't that high. Not David. David says, in you, God, I will put my trust because I think about the worst thing that can happen to me and I will still trust you. In his very situation, the very worst thing they can do to him is that they could kill him. And what David is essentially saying here is that if they kill me, if I lose my life, it's not too bad. I know that sounds kind of morbid, tragic. But if I lose my life, it's not that bad because I have hope of a better life. I have a hope of a better life. It's a bit hard to understand. But what David had as a perspective or he quickly discovered, perhaps in the holding cell of Gath, was, you know, if they kill me, it's okay. Because God, you have secured for me an eternal home. If you remember his beloved psalm, Psalm 23, he writes in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knows where he's going. He's going to heaven. It's been a depressing week because we've had three memorial services at our church. One after another. And during these services, uh, a verse came to mind this week from the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And for whatever reason, this verse stuck to me this week. To die is gain. How? In one of the memorial services, which I won't expound in the sermon this morning, I shared with the grieving family four things that we gain when we die. We gain a better body. We gain a better home. We gain a better inheritance. And we gain a better fellowship. Paul really believed that. That's why he could say with all conviction, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this was the attitude and the sentiments of those first and second century Christians who were willing to have their life martyred for the sake of Christ, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What's the worst they can do to me? They can kill me, but it's okay because I'm going to enter into a better life. I'm going to enter into a better home. These were the very sentiments of David as he quickly realized that his life was on the cusp of death. I will put my trust in God when I am afraid. I will not fear because the worst thing they can do to me is they could kill me. But that's all right because I know where I'm going. Now jump down to verse 9 to verse 11. Look what he says. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. Now hang on there. 
when I read that again, I stopped. This I know, God is for me. You're in a holding cell, perhaps. You're in the land of the enemy. There is no one here. And you're telling God, this is how God shows that He is on your side. David doesn't waver. Look at verse 10 and 11. In God, I will praise His name. In the Lord, I will praise His word. In God, I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can men do to me? You know what David is essentially saying here is that, God, I acknowledge that you are on my side. I acknowledge that the very current situation I'm in is what you have allowed. It's because you love me. The world says, hang on there. You're in prison. You're captured. This is God's will for you. This is how he shows his love. I don't think so. But David has the right perspective. And I have to keep reminding myself this, and I remind also you this very same principle. The things that God allows to happen in our life, good or bad, is centered and based on a God who loves us very much. Yes, sometimes He allows us to be disciplined. Sometimes He allows us to go through hurts. Sometimes He allows us to go through trials and pains. But never ever forget that he always loves us he allows those things in our life but he never stops loving us if you're unsure about the love of god would you go this week and read romans chapter 8 the unchanging unfathomable love of god we can never escape david in one of the most difficult times of his life, said to God, God, this I know, I know this. You're for me. You're with me. You're on my side. You love me. It's a hard thing to say when we're going through troubles and trials. I'm reminded of a two-year-old boy also named David. He had leukemia. He was taken by his mother, Deborah, to Mass Gen Hospital in Boston, a very famous hospital, to see Dr. John Truman. Dr. Truman specialized in treating children with cancer and various blood diseases. Dr. Truman's prognosis was devastating. David has a 50-50 chance of surviving, but we're going to try our best. What came next was countless clinic visits the numerous blood tests, the intravenous drugs, the pain, the, the, the fear, the pain, the uncertainty. The mother's ordeal could almost be as bad as the child's itself because she must stand by, unable to bear the pain herself. Oh, but little David was special. He never cried in the waiting room. And although his friends in the clinic had to hurt him and stick him with needles... He hustled in ahead of his mother, always with a smile, sure of the welcome he would always get from the doctors and the nurses. When he was three years old, David had to undergo a spinal tap, a very painful procedure at any age. His mother explained to him, David, we have to go through this procedure because you are sick. 
But Dr. Truman has to do it so that it will make you better. And she said these words to him. David, if it hurts, remember it's because he loves you. Indeed, the procedure was horrendous. It took three nurses to hold David still while he yelled and sobbed and struggled. When it was almost over, the tiny boy, soaked in sweat and tears, looked up at the doctor and said, Thank you, Dr. Truman, for my hurting. Thank you for my hurting. The story is found in Miracles of Courage by Monica Dickens. I wonder how many of us can say that to our Lord, who allows us to undergo trials and difficulties in life, and can we say to him, thank you, Lord, for my hurting? It's hard. It's very hard. It's easy and natural to blame God, but it's very hard to say thank you. Thank you because you love me so much that you are so good to me. Thank you that you are on my side. Thank you for what you allow me to go through. David, I believe, understood or began to understand while in Gath that God allowed him to go through this, the hurting, because he loved him. In fact, David understood that God loved him, was on his side, that he proclaimed two times, in God, I've put my trust. What, man, what can man do to me? Even though I'm afraid, even though I'm hurting, even though I'm lonely, I will trust. Only in God alone does David see the person in whom he will trust. He cannot trust anyone else. There's no one else around him. People that were supposed to be close to him have, have turned their back on him in his loneliness he finds that he can place his trust only in God alone. And my friends, therein lies the great principle of trust. A heart of trust is a heart that trusts in God alone. It's as simple as that. A heart of trust is a heart that trusts in God alone. And the key word being alone. Alone. God had to bring David to a place where he was very much alone. No Jonathan, no father, no brothers, nothing. To bring him to a point where he was very much alone, it was him and God. For David to realize what true trust was. To cultivate in his own life a heart of trust, which is the trust in God alone. It is written in the currency of the U.S. bills, a statement. In God we trust. And all the Christians applaud that. And so the new Philippine currency also puts a Bible verse on their money. But I find it ironic, and the reality is this, that the very people who hold the money that says, in God we trust, don't trust God. Honestly, they trust in the money. We trust in the money in which it is printed, in God we trust to get through our problems. 
we simply often only pay lip service when we say we trust God. But reality says we trust in people who are influential. We trust in people who are well-connected. We trust in people who are wealthy. We trust in people who are powerful. My friends, you will never understand trust until you can trust in God alone. That is the very nature of the word trust. You will know no trust until you can trust in God alone. Every person or thing or place that you place your trust in will eventually let you down. But there is one who stands closer than a brother, and he is our Lord. It is not God plus something else. We trust God when we trust in Him alone. And only oftentimes in the pit of despair, in the moments of loneliness, when there is no one to turn to, that you learn trust. And David learns this in Gath. And he writes about it in his Psalms. Turn with me a few pages over to Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, we see a psalm written by David as he has now escaped Gath. Look at the caption of Psalm 34. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, and that's a title, a royal title, who drove him away and he departed. This psalm was written after David had left Gath, thanking the Lord for allowing him to escape. I don't know when he wrote it. Perhaps right after he got into a safe place, he remembered, wow, that was a close one. But then he writes this psalm, and he begins by praising God, verse 1 to 4. I will bless the Lord all the time. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. David begins by praising God and exalting his name. He thanks God for delivering him from the very fears that are mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 21. While he was all alone amongst and surrounded by the enemies. And then in the rest of the psalm, David would draw out three things he realizes about God that allowed him to trust God fully. Three things that God does in each one of our lives that allows us to trust. They are not deep spiritually, not theological, difficult things to understand. Here are the three basic things that David is reminded about God. I'll give them to you right now. David realizes, number one, that God watches Number two, that God hears. And number three, that God protects. Let's study the first one. Look at verse 15 and 16. Psalm 34, verse 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. 
what a vivid picture for David. David tells us that God is watching. God is an omniscient God. He, he sees everything and therefore he knows everything. You know, what an assurance to, to those of us who are going through some sort of injustice, some sort of trial, to know that the God of heaven sees the very people who are hurting us. That the God of the universe would care to know the problems that we have. A simple problem as we can't solve this math problem, God knows about and he is concerned about it. The biggest problem that there's someone out to kill me. He knows because he sees. I'm sure David, as he's running, wonders, if I'm killed here in Gath, will people even know I was killed? To undergo such loneliness, and then the quick and wonderful realization, wait, I'm not alone. My God sees everything, and he knows I am here. He knows I am in Gath. He knows perhaps I'm in a holding cell. He knows perhaps I need to appear before Akish. He watches. He sees. And he sees everything. Jump up to verse 6 with me. This poor man cried out. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Jump down to verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The second realization of what God does that allowed David to continue to trust God is that he trusts God because he realizes that God hears. God listens. God listens to the cry of all he doesn't simply listen to the cries of the important people. He doesn't listen only to the prayers of the rich. Look how he phrases it in verse 6. This poor man cries out. And immediately, the Lord heard him. My friends, I want you to understand that God listens to our problems. From the richest to the poorest person. From the famous to the infamous. Of every ethnicity. From the most eloquent of prayers to the most simple. From the prayers of one who walks with God and one who is in the pit of despair. When we cry out to God, He always hears he always listens, and He hears us all equally. Whether it's the prayer of the pastor or the prayer of the parishioner, God hears our prayers. You know, I find it humorous at times that there are some of you who cannot carry an English conversation with me. But when you pray, you pray in English. Did you ever notice that? You feel so at ease praying in Taglish or Chinglish or whatever other language you use. Yes, that's Chinese English. But when you pray, you pray in formal English. As if praying in English somehow gets your prayer ahead of the line. 
He listens to every single language. He understands it. He even understands that when we cry out one word, he can fill in the rest of the sentence. He knows our prayers even before we utter them. David, in the pit of despair, comes to the realization, my God hears me. The God of the universe hears me. Little old me. Surrounded by enemies. Captive, he hears me. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Jump down to verse 18 to 20. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. We see in these verses that David comes to another realization that God protects. The beautiful imagery, the angel of the Lord encamps around he surrounds us. Nothing can happen to us that God does not allow. What a beautiful truth. Nothing. So you don't have to go around worrying about in your day what's going to happen to me. Woe is unto me. Some of you are so afraid of, of making the next move. Leaving your very homes because of anxiety. Nothing that God does not allow will happen to you. God is not surprised by anything. Now, I've got to say this caveat because some of you only listen to what you want to hear. This great truth is not a license for you to do stupid things. If you jump off a 50-foot building and yell out, God, protect me, he will just allow you to hit the ground and say, welcome home. But in the general way of how we live our life, the understanding that He protects us tells us that we don't need to be scared. I know there are people, usually wealthy people, husband and wives never fly on the same flight. They're worried what will happen to our empire if the plane crashes. What an inconvenience. Now, you may say it's a practical thing, Pastor. Yeah, it could be. But when I like to fly somewhere, I want to go with my family. If the plane crashes, it crashes. We may be scared, but our life is secured in the very hands of God. We don't need lucky charms. We don't need talismans. We don't need a rabbit's foot or a furry dice or whatever other ritual you go through. You're never going to get more of God's protection. God protects us completely always. Newspaper tells us of train derailments and car and plane crashes and earthquakes and fires and rioting and whatever else. We wonder why we even step out of our homes. But we trust him because he protects us. Nothing can happen to us that God does not allow. And that is a great truth to understand. 
I believe David summarizes and concludes the psalm, not at the end, but in verse 8. Look what he writes in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Wow. David is able to see that God is a good God in the good times and in the bad times, in the victories and in the struggles. And he can say, blessed is the man who trusts in him. The very word blessed can be said happy. Happy is the man who trusts in him, in him alone. And that's so true. I'll often mention this, that oftentimes God allows me to learn the lesson first before I can deliver the message in the weekend. I often don't like that because the lessons are harsh sometimes. But I must learn it myself before I can dare preach it to you. And it was no different this week. If you would allow me to share with you, early this week, uh, one evening, I was getting ready for bed, and I was uh, in front of the mirror, and I noticed something that was a bit different. I noticed that uh, uh, there was a mole on my shoulder, which I've had since I was uh, born, that had uh, grown, that had gotten bigger, and uh, had uh, changed in its appearance. I had uh, always been told that uh, if there's any changes to a mole, you should probably get it checked out. Well, it was in the evening, and my curiosity got the best of me, and so I began to play quack doctor and got on the Internet. As you have done, I'm sure, uh, the more pictures I looked of cancerous moles, the more I realized my mole looked like each one of them. I thought to myself, oh, no. I have skin cancer, because that's what my grandmother had. You've got to understand, we've also had three memorial services this past few days. Death was very much on my mind, so much so that in the subconscious, early this week, I also dreamt of my own funeral, really. So, as a precaution, uh, this week I went to the dermatologist and got a routine biopsy, to confirm that everything is okay, and I'm not here to tell you to worry for me. Please don't. Uh, I'll be fine. Nothing to worry about. I'll find out the results next week or this week. But I share with you something the doctor told me after taking a bit of skin, which I so loved. She told me, Pastor, I will be calling you with the good news soon. I will be calling you with the good news. As I got in the car, I thought about the truth of that statement. I'm sure it's just a mole. It probably is. I am just uh, was uh, uh, a bit uh, cautious. And if it's benign, praise God, wonderful, nothing, good news. But then I said, what if it's stage four cancer? I'm going to die. Can I say good news? And there it hit me. That's the lesson of trust. If in the good news it could come out, it is benign or it is cancerous. And if the news to you can still be good, then you have understood what trust is. Because God knows what he is doing. And that changed my perspective. 
I didn't go home and begin to write my will or videotape messages to my children. But with a perspective that says, God, it's in your hands. It's probably just a mole. I slept well, and I've been sleeping well ever since. And I think I'll continue to sleep well until I find out the results. Because the words are so true in verse 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Happy. Happy. No worries. Happy is the man or woman who trusts in God. It's a simple lesson with profound application. Do you trust in God alone? Do you realize that he watches over you? He hears your cry. He protects you. Can you live out the truth of trust in your life? I haven't spoken of anything new this week. It's a simple, simple lesson. But it has deep implications. If you want to cultivate a heart for God... You must cultivate a heart of trust. Catherine Marshall, in her blog, writes about her friend Marge. Marge had an experience boarding a plane bound for somewhere waiting for takeoff. As she settled into her seat, Marge noticed a strange phenomenon. On one side of the airplane was a sunset infusing the entire sky with glorious colors. But out of the window next to her on the other side of the airplane, all Marge could see was dark, ominous, threatening skies with no sign of the sunset. As the plane's engine began to roar, a, a gentle voice spoke within her to Marge. Ah, Marge, you've noticed the windows. Your life, too, will contain some happy and beautiful times, but also some dark shadows. And here's a lesson I want to teach you to save you from much headache and allow you to abide in me with continual peace and joy. You see, Marge, it doesn't matter which window you want to stare at as you get to your destination. This plane is still going to arrive at its destination. So it is with your life. You have a choice. You can stare out at that gloomy picture of ominous clouds, or you can stare out on the other side at the bright, beautiful sunset and then leave the dark, ominous situations to me. I alone can handle them anyways. You see, Marge, the final destination is not influenced by what you see or feel along the way. Learn this. Act on it, and you will be released. Able to experience the peace that passes all understanding. Worrying will not solve your problem. Worrying will simply make that process, which you must go through anyway, that much more difficult. Great preacher D.L. Moody, his favorite verse was said to be Isaiah 12, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 has these words, I will trust and not be afraid. It's a children's song, I know. I will trust and not be afraid. And he would often say, 
You can travel first class or second class to heaven. We're all going to get to our destination. But you can travel to heaven second class with this attitude. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust. But the enjoyable ride to heaven, the first class attitude is, I will trust and not be afraid. How many of you are struggling in the back as we head towards the same destination, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ? Too many Christians are in the back complaining and wondering why the flight is taking so long. Why we have to experience the bumps of the traveling. And whenever I am afraid, then it catapults me to try to trust God. But the ones in the front, they're enjoying the ride. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Why not buy the first class ticket this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your words. Your words of encouragement to remind us that we need to trust you more. Because we've been burned so many times, we've simply lost trust of others. And more importantly, we've stopped trusting you. Some of us wrongly think that you'll be just like the rest of them. Simply saying nice words to get us to love you. But oh no, Lord. Thank you for the great understanding and the great truth and the revelation of who you are. To teach us that you watch over us. You hear each of our cry. And you even now protect us. And for that, we thank you. Change our perspective to know how to trust in you alone. Perhaps for some in the pit of despair, in the pit of loneliness, we won't be searching for others. We will look to you, the one who has always been there, and begin to learn the lesson of trust. Help us all to be on that first-class attitude, with that first-class attitude as we reach that destination, longing for your soon coming. I will trust and not be afraid. In Jesus' name we pray.